Just 58 days remain before Taiwan heads to the polls. That's right, it's election season here in Taiwan. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Now let's take a look at the stories that have been on our radar this week. KMT presidential candidate Han Guoyu has named former premier Zhang Sanzheng as his running mate. Zhang says that he will be an active vice president and not, as he put it, just a mascot. People First Party chairman James Song has announced that he will run for president. This will be Song's fourth presidential bid since 2000, and he says it will be his last. Taiwanese baseball fans rejoiced on Tuesday after Taiwan beat rival South Korea 7-0 in the Premier 12 baseball tournament. The tournament is a qualifier for the 2020 Olympics, so if Taiwan can keep up its momentum, it just might be headed to Tokyo in 2020. Norwegian triathlete Gustav Eden got a rapturous welcome in Zhanghua County this week. The central county is home to a temple that he accidentally made famous. Eden and the temple both shot to fame after he was photographed wearing one of the temple's hats when crossing the finish line of a big race. The runner says he picked the hat off a street in Japan where it had been dropped and just decided that he liked it. And one of the stories under the radar this week is something that happened under the ground. A flaming mud volcano erupted in Pingdong County, creating both a spectacle for photographers and a headache for local farmers. Now for our top story, People First Party Chairman James Song is running for president. This is his fourth time. Now let's take a look at what he had to say at his announcement this week. The Republic of China's presidential elections on January 11th next year will be my sixth battle. James Song announced his presidential bid on Wednesday. My motto has always been, good things come to those who work hard. I'd like to use this motto to awaken the hardworking spirit of Taiwan's people. When we work hard, we will win. Veteran politician James Song hasn't given up on his ambition to be president. In 2000, he ran with Professor Zhang Zhaosheng and got over 36% of the votes. Four years later, he ran as the vice presidential candidate with Lian Zan, and they received nearly 50% of the tally. In 2012, Song chose public health professor Lin Reisheng as his running mate, and they got less than 3% of the votes. In the last election, Song ran with Ming Guodong's Xu Xingying, and they got over 12%. Song says this time is his end game as he pairs up with advertising giant Yu Xiang. In January, we'll see how this duo impacts this presidential election. Song's first run in 2000 was a historic run. He split with the Guomindang to run as an independent, and that split in the blue camp is what paved the way for the first ever transfer of political party power in Taiwan's history. The Democratic Progressive Party's Chen Shui-bian won with just over 39% of the vote. Song was just 2.5% behind Chen and has been running for president or vice president ever since. The KMT's Lian Zhan came in a distant third because of Song. Now, many say Song's chances aren't high this time, but he could gain legislative seats for his party and affect the race. Now, the KMT has come out with their presidential ticket, and it is the first time there is no Taiwan-born candidate on the ticket. 
Hang Yu announced that former premier Simon Zhang would be his running mate. Let's take a look at what Zhang had to say this week. I've been helping presidential candidate Han Guoyu as his national affairs advisor, so I have a very good understanding of the workings of his future administration. If I can serve as vice president, I'll serve as a catalyst for our national advisory group. I won't be just a mascot. Taiwanese voters are not just voting for president and vice president next January. All 113 seats in the legislature are up for grabs. But of those seats, only 79 are directly elected. So what about the remaining 34 seats? How are they chosen? That's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Taiwanese voters will be choosing a brand new legislature next January. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to walk you through the process. Okay, you have 60 seconds to do this. Are okay. you ready, Andrew? Uh, I think so. All right, go. All right, let's start by looking at the legislature as it is right now. So as you can see, there are 113 seats all up for grabs. Right now, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, that's the green seats, they have well over a majority, followed by the Guomindang with the blue seats. The remaining seats are held by small parties and independents. Now, of the 113 seats, 73 of them are directly elected. An additional six seats are filled by Taiwan's indigenous population. And the remaining 34 seats are legislators at large, and they're filled by a party vote. Now, they introduced the party vote back in 2008. And basically, you get an extra ballot that looks a little bit like this. All the parties are lined up on it, and you use a rubber stamp to put a chop above the party that you want to select. Now, the number of legislator-at-large seats uh, is determined by the results of this vote. Each party has lists of their candidates in order ranked by priority. So if you're at the top of the list, chances are you'll get elected. Perfect, Andrew. <laughs> nice job. Thank you. Okay, so we know that the lists have come out for most of the parties. Are there any interesting candidates on the list? Yes. Well, what's interesting is, is as of recording time, all of the parties except for one, the DPP, have released their lists. And female candidates are at the top of all the lists. That's interesting. That means we're more attractive. I think so. <laughs> well, I think is usually what happens is they're trying to get uh, people on the list that will get people to vote for the political party for so that Maybe the vote. women will come out or the people who like these women. Or, or people who are not, you know, usually seen in the legislature. So it's candidates that are a little bit different, minority candidates, new immigrants, people with disabilities, people who usually don't have a shot at being in the legislature. This is parties, these are, this is a great chance for the parties to use these candidates to attract voters. Um, now, what's interesting is that this time around, uh, a lot of the parties, it looks like at least the two main parties maybe will be choosing more politicians than in previous years. Is there a reason for this? What's interesting is this year, uh, the KMT has released their list, and it's largely politicians. And there's a little bit of unhappiness within and without of the party, outside of the party. They're saying the DPP might also do the same thing because they're worried that they're not going to have the majority and they need people who can push their agenda in the mm. legislature. But who knows if it'll work for them or against them, right? Exactly. All right. So, uh, well, thanks for that, Andrew. Yeah. And that's our Taiwan Explained for the week. In Taiwan by Number this week, we're going to be talking about our furry friends or pets in Taiwan. Now, you guys know that pets have been increasing at a rate of 10% lately. 
past couple year? years. Past couple of years. Wow, wow, okay. Whereas the birth rate has been declining by about four percent. Hmm. So. So people are having dogs, not kids. Yes. <laughs> so my question for you is. When is the number of pets going to outnumber the number of kids 15 and younger? What year? What year? For that mm -hmm. year? Yeah. That, oh when when do the pets outnumber you mean it the hasn't kids? already happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, goodness. I'm going to say 2023. Okay. I'm going to go 2022. All right. The okay. price of right. <laughs> <laughs> so before we uh, take a look at the answer, let's take a look at this video. This is Niu Niu, a police dog whose job is to patrol a neighborhood in the southern city of Tainan. Niu Niu does a pretty good job, but she not only helps the police, she also enjoys playing with children. Tainan's vocational pet training center trains stray dogs like Niu Niu. Holding up two fingers like this means bark twice. Once they are trained, they can become campus dogs or god dogs, depending on their personality. Dog trainer Huang Lianfa said it takes half a month for strays to learn simple commands. The dog is learning to sit on command. It's a win-win situation for all. Training stray dogs also relieves overcrowding in animal shelters because well-trained dogs are in demand. That's such a great video. You know... <laughs> You know what they call it when dogs learn how to do a job? <laughs> On the dog training. <laughs> sorry. Throw me a bone here. Andrew, throw me a bone. Woof, woof. All right, sorry. Okay. I had to say that. Okay, so I had a question for you guys. When are our pets going to outnumber our children in Taiwan? And you said 2023? 2022. 2023 yes. and 2022. Let's take a look at the answer. It's next year. What? Wait, what? Yeah, the end of next year. The latter half of next year. Wow. So that's, the, the pets are growing really that's quickly. That's a big concern. They? I'm going to move all my money out of baby formula and <laughs> <laughs> pet food. That's a good investment. Okay, so yeah. we should learn more about our cats and dogs, right? Yes. And we just had a video about stray dogs. So let me ask you, the government actually has an estimate of how many stray dogs are in Taiwan. What was their estimate for last year? Stray dogs in Taiwan mm -hmm. last year. I think you need to go first, Leslie. Um, Take a wild <laughs> guess. Stray dogs, like 250,000? Okay. I'm going to say, oof, that's a good guess. 250,000. Okay, 249,999. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the answer. Yes, I You're closer. 146,773. That's They're very specific, right? Yeah, it's very specific. <laughs> How do they get that kind of a specific guess? I don't guess? know. They do it by, by county, and okay. somehow they came to that number. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they're keeping track. Mm -hmm. All right. So another question is, you know, people acquire their pets in many ways. For dogs, they might adopt one from the shelter or take in a stray dog or um, it may be a gift, or it could be purchase. So how many of the pet dogs have been taken in as stray dogs? From the street, how many, mm -hmm. of, what percentage? Straight from the street? Yes. Oh, So wow. what percentage of the pet dogs have been taken straight from the street? There are pretty big campaigns for like rescuing dogs now. 
But I'll usually say, they go through like like shelters and stuff, no? Does that but then that sense? means adopting. Mm. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. Um, hmm. You go first. Sixty-seven percent. Wow. <laughs> I like that. That's very optimistic. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I'm I got it wrong. Say thirty-eight point five percent. Point five. Okay, let's take a look at the answer. Twenty-two percent. That's yeah. it. Okay. Oh, wow. So, so we need actually, to work on that. yeah, actually, number one is um, adoption, thirty-two okay. percent, mm -hmm. and then number two is purchasing at twenty-three percent. So actually, a lot of them um, adoption, I think, are also mm. mostly stray dogs as well. That's good. So if so we actually, add that to the twenty-two percent, right? It's a lot over of them fifty. Are, yeah. Over half actually were originally stray dogs. Mm. Less than half are bought. Okay. But only twenty-three percent are bought, and the rest are gifts or the your own dogs, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Puppies. That is the thing too. Okay, so one more question. Now, this is about the pet industry. It's, it's booming, right? Mm. All these pets. So how much um, money do the Taiwanese spend per year in empty dollars on their pets? Collectively. <coughs> Collectively. Per oh, year. Wow. Give us a wild empty dollar figure. Wow. I always get these wrong. Millions. Oh, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, uh, if everybody had a dog, 23 million people, <laughs> and spend a dollar a year. I'm going to say 23 million. Okay. <laughs> Pet maintenance, I think, is a little more, more than that. I'm going to say 50 million. 50 million anti dollars? Okay, let's take a look at the answer. 50, 50 billion. billion. Yeah, what? they spend a lot more than that. Wait. Now, they don't have health insurance. They spend the most on food and then on medical care and then they need clothes and accessories. So that's like nearly Grooming? two billion US dollars. Like a hundred Nearly about one point six billion US dollars. Wow. That's a lot. I went the total wrong direction with that. Wow. So we they're actually did. expensive, not as expensive as kids are, but, uh, mm. but yes. they're easier to take care of than kids. Yes. Right? And people are going that way. So kids anyway. don't take tests. You don't have to like send them to like cram <laughs> school, right? <laughs> I mean kids do, pets, pets don't, right? <laughs> Thank heavens there are no <laughs> cram schools for pets. Well, thank you so much. Uh, sure. That is today's Taiwan by Number. Up next, hashtag Taiwan. Leslie Liao is going to tell us what's trending in Taiwan. All right, guys. So this week, there's a lot to unpack, so I'm just going to come right out with it. Last week, China introduced 26 new incentives to attract Taiwanese people and businesses to move to China. And this was seen as a tactic to kind of bring the two sides closer together and unify Taiwan and China. Now, that same day, a news anchor from China's central television actually said the words, Wan Wan come home, Wan Wan being her cute nickname for Taiwan. Now, the internet being the internet responded. <laughs> Independent legislator Hong Si-yong actually said uh, in a picture, she said, no thanks, the people of Taiwan are already home. Mm -hmm. Now, that's as tame as it's going to get. Do you guys remember Ah Ray, the internet artist who did a bunch of pictures for Tsai Ing-wen? Yeah, yes, those he are does nice. cartoons, right? That's right. He oh, came out wife, with right? this picture. And this cartoon shows <laughs> that the anchor, after she says, Wan Wan comes home, her face kind of opens up to, into this grotesque monstrosity that can only be said to be made of pure condensed nightmare fuel. <laughs> now, the monster here is actually taken from a Japanese comic book series called Parasite. Okay, and then some people, they actually had fun with the wordplay, you know, the whole Wan Wan thing. Now, Chen Guanning is actually a TV show host for ERA Taiwan. She calls herself Guan Guan in the same regard that the news anchor said Wan Wan, mm -hmm. and uh, this is what she said. Check it out. 
所以央视有个主播说：“弯弯回家吧。”那关关就回应你：“弯弯不回家，香香被家暴，请你停止对香香的家暴。”星星跟西西都被监控，然后香香被家暴，所以弯弯不回家。弯弯看到西西、星星跟香香，看都怕都怕死了。而且弯弯不喜欢爬墙，弯弯喜欢有网络自由。谁要跟你回家没有网络自由，要爬墙啊 ？Now that is what I call a mic drop. <laughs> anyway, here's the Leslie Liao pick of the week. This picture was posted by a user from Suzhou University. In it, after the anchor says, "One one come home." Two penguins who that represent Taiwanese businesses in China kind of look at each other and say, "All right, we'll come home," and then they go back to Taiwan to reinvest in the country. <laughs> Now, this has been a landmark year for reinvestment in Taiwan by Taiwanese businesses in China. In fact, they've already pledged up to 23 billion U.S. dollars in reinvestment、wow. in Taiwan again. That's due to the U.S.-China trade war, actually. So we're、mm. one of the biggest winners、mm. um, of that war. 23 billion U.S.、Yes. dollars is a Big payout. Those so, those penguins, I have to say, are pretty cute. They are cute. They're, they're like fin and fin rushing <laughs> back. <laughs> so we、Taiwan. do welcome them home. That's right. <laughs> so I think there's different ideas of home that we're talking about. That's China、right. says they're home, and we're here home. And the penguins say, "All right, we'll go home." <laughs> I thought their home was the, like the South Pole. And, <laughs> so confused. The internet, you know, doesn't make sense. <laughs> we would have thought. Okay, thanks, Leslie. That was really interesting. And that is Taiwan's hashtag Taiwan for the week. Do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. Recently, there was a national Diablo competition here in Taiwan. Now, have you heard of Diablos before? Yes, my kids learned them in school. Really? Yeah. It's a thing. It's a PE thing. It's incredible. It's this. It's like it looks like a two-headed top on a string. They call it a Chinese yo-yo as well. A Chinese yo-yo as well. Well, I saw some videos of this, and I it blew my mind. So we decided that we had to share them with you. So let's have a look at this. This is actually a national competition. So that just took place this week on Sunday. One of these will be representing Taiwan in a global competition that we're going to host next year.、Look、so these、that. are all the contenders. Quite Leslie, amazing. Leslie, you can do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you do this when you were going well, to school here? <laughs> and I learned some in the states, but never to this degree. <laughs> this is just incredible. It almost looks like a hip hop dance competition. Yeah, isn't it cool? And they make them look like superstars. They've got the lighting. They've got the music. Okay, so now they're going to announce the winner. Who is it? It's、yeah. Zhao Yusong. So he's going to be—he's the champion, and he'll be representing Taiwan next year in the global competition. Well, we hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to follow us on social media. Yes, and leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao, and I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Taiwan's population has changed vastly in the past two decades. That's due partly to an influx of migrant workers and immigrants from Southeast Asia. What impact and contribution have they had on Taiwan? Well, today, join us as RTI host Andrew Ryan interviews Dr. Michael Shao, a sociologist and a chairman of a new think tank, reaching out to Taiwan's newest immigrants. I'm delighted to have with me today in the studio Dr. Michael Shao, who is a sociologist and also the chairman of a brand new think tank called the Taiwan Asia Exchange Foundation, which deals primarily with exchanges between Taiwan and Southeast Asia, South Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Dr. Shao, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here. So I want to start off by talking about uh, Taiwan's foreign-born community. Yeah. Now, when I first came to Taiwan 20 years ago, mm. uh, when we thought of foreigners in Taiwan, we thought of people who looked kind of like me. That's uh, right. So white people from Europe, uh, from North America, white-collar workers. However, that actually was incorrect, and it's even more incorrect today when we're talking mm. about Taiwan's foreign-born community. That's right. Can you maybe paint a picture for us? What does this community look like in Taiwan today? Actually, it started the, the, the landscape, the ethno landscape changed in 1990s when Taiwan began the first wave of a go-south policy. And we began to bring in a lot of uh, foreign workers mm-hmm. from Southeast Asia mainly from Southeast Asia. And then from then also we have a lot of cross-border marriage migrant Mm -hmm. also in 1990s. And that really become a a very major primary sin in Taiwan, in in Taiwan's ethnic composition. Mm. And that actually that reinforced that Taiwan has long been a diverse ethnic society Mm -hmm. 400 years ago. And now this, this composition, now we have about 880,000 total. I'm talking about uh, 720 the migrant workers. Okay, 720,000 migrant workers migrant in workers. Taiwan. And primarily from Indonesia. Indo- Indonesia is a top, top, and uh-huh. then followed by Vietnamese, and then Philippines, and then Thailand. Okay. And then another 160,000 cross-border marriage migrants, more than 90% married to Taiwanese men. Mm-hmm. And many top one is Vietnamese, okay. followed by Indonesia, and then Philippines and Thailand. And this, of course, doesn't include uh, cross-border marriages That's with different. Chinese. Yeah, right? and actually, okay. if you look at they don't have a, we do not accept uh, migrant workers from China, mm-hmm. but we do have a quite big number of uh, cross-border marriage Mm -hmm. from PRC. And actually, the number is bigger than 160, about 250, more than 250. But again, how many people live, really live in Taiwan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's different. So I guess it's about 120,000 who really live. The the women, Chinese women, live with Taiwanese husband in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. The other 140,000, uh, they live in China. I so see. men go go to China. And stay and, in China where they're China married. Work. Okay. Men is through work, you know. Okay. And, and then actually um, in the past, a lot of our older Chinese women who married to a old soldiers, veterans, mm-hmm. 
who married to. And so the composition, the, the age, uh, motivation, and their social, cultural, political inclination are very different. And so we would focus on more on the Southeast Asian. Mm. And so your foundation, the Taiwan Exchange uh, Foundation, actually primarily deals with uh, people Asia. from Southeast Asia. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about how people from Southeast Asia have really kind of changed the face of Taiwan in terms of yeah. their contributions and what they, you know, do in Taiwan. I, I want to go back just to a moment to the foreign-born community. So people who look like me or have the same situation as me, we only make up about 1 in 20 of all of the people that were born outside of Taiwan. That's right. So, so to think of Taiwan's so-called You're a minority. We're a minority. Within, within, within a minority. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And you see, actually, the Southeast Asian workers or uh, spouses, mm -hmm. f f uh, mainly women, uh, actually change the landscape, mm -hmm. the ethnic scape. We can see them, their faces, mm -hmm. on the street, in the neighborhood, in the block of a neighborhood, and especially weekend. If you Sunday, you go to the train station, you can see a huge number of them sitting there, singing, you know, mm -hmm. eating together, chatting, talk about their feeling and work situation, and then how much they miss their hometown. And that is in a train station. And in, if you go to Zhongshan Beilu, mm -hmm. and you can see the church there, mm -hmm. and they have many composed of uh, Filipino. Filipinos, yeah. 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 So really everyday life, it's a, they become a part of a Taiwan social everyday life landscape. And, and this is something we wouldn't have seen in Taiwan 20 years ago. It would have been only in small pockets that we yeah. would have seen this. Now it seems like it's become more part of everyday life in Taiwan. That's very true. And also you mentioned about contribution. I think, of course, two things. Uh, practically, mm -hmm. they supply the necessary labor. Okay. And among these 720,000 uh, almost half work in the manufacturing sector, men, mm -hmm. male uh, migrant workers. The other half is about the domestic helper, but small mm -hmm. minority, small number. Mainly is actually from a caretaker in institutions or at home mm -hmm. to take care of Taiwan's elderly. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. They are actually, they supply the labor force for our productivity, production. Mm -hmm. And they also replace the role of a family member mm. who can have a 24 hours to take care of Taiwanese elderly. And these are both very important in Taiwan because there is a, a slowing birth rate yeah. and there are fewer people uh, who are filling these jobs and also, uh, you know, especially for manufacturing and for the long-term care. That's right. If we didn't have migrant workers that were fulfilling these jobs, what, what would Taiwan look like? Well, look, we lack of a shortage of labor. Mm -hmm. And we were shortage of the... And they, were, they cannot replace the wives, mm -hmm. especially the middle-class housewife, wife, the, who wish to work outside. Mm -hmm. And they, they can replace them. So actually, wor workforce is one story. Mm -hmm. The other one is for the family. Actually, Taiwan family, the family structure is become globalization, mm -hmm. Southeast Asianization. Mm -hmm. And they, re they play the role as a daughter, daughter-in-law, or granddaughter mm -hmm. who care of the elderly. So we all need it. This is a social demographic change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, as we're talking about this, I want to give you a picture of Taiwan's total population. So there's uh, close to 24 million people in Taiwan. Yeah. 
Uh, and of those, nearly one million yep. are either migrant workers, came here by marriage, uh, or, or work in Taiwan. Um, so with this increase in number of people coming from Southeast Asia, has there been any pushback in Taiwan society against this group of people? In Europe, many countries in Europe, and there is an anti-immigration populist mentality and uh, used, uh, mobilized by the populist leadership. But in Taiwan, thanks God, mm. we, we don't have that evident. Mm -hmm. But still the subtle discrimination or prejudice are there. But we do not have the collective mm -hmm. effort to push out this one because we need it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a part of, and also Taiwan society has been quite tolerant uh, to the outside population. When you think about Taiwan history, 6,000 years ago is uh, the Austronesian mm -hmm. tribes, and 400 years ago the Han Chinese moved from Guangdong and Fujian, right? Mm -hmm. And then later, the, the, and then the Qing dynasty had more people move in, and then the, the Japanese occupation, and in between, there is a Spanish, you know, Portuguese, and then after World War II, and then we have a, a official migrant from military and a government official after the defeat of a, the Nationalist Party. Mm -hmm. So we got from a, China, from yeah. China, and then you know foreigners, yeah. you know Western, you know everyone, and then the Southeast. So actually, it's really we are used to this kind of uh, ethnic diversity. What do you think uh, Taiwan will look like 10 years from now in terms of the uh, population makeup? Do you think that the numbers of uh, Southeast Asian uh, immigrants will continue to rise in Taiwan? It's hard to say. I think it really is a supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And worker probably will continue in a slower pace, mm -hmm. steady increase, but cannot be increased too much. Mm -hmm. There are two reasons. One is we upgrade the technology industries. So we buy might not need the blue collar workers that much, they're not desperately. Secondly, when the Southeast Asian country become richer, they don't want to send people here because mm -hmm. it's, it's a hard job. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and uh, in, in recent years in Indonesia, there even has a called a economic uh, uh, nationalism. Mm -hmm. You say, why should we always send our work, our people to foreign country to work? Why don't we create our own? Mm. You know, so when the economic becomes better, the quality of life is better, uh, life condition better, and they were uh, they were more reluctant to come aboard. So I would say in ten years now, the workforce was slowed down, still increased in a slower pace. In terms of marriage, my uh, migrant probably mm -hmm. were slow, also was slowed slow, down, also slowed down. And uh, I forgot to mention that uh, what the landscape changed, uh, the population changed because of, of their uh, participation in the Taiwan's family. We have 160,000 uh, spouses from Southeast Asia, right? And actually they gave birth. Mm -hmm. And now we have about 90,000 children who we call the new Taiwanese, the new second Taiwanese. generation, yep. in the primary school and elementary school and middle school, and you would include the preschool, that probably easily goes to 150. I've seen a figure that says that for like first graders in elementary school in Taiwan, one in 10 will have a parent from Southeast Asia. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's, it's not exaggeration, it's yeah. not. 
Yeah. So that's really changing the, the face yeah. of Taiwan. Yeah, and then your school, you can see. And then uh, many data, there's some talk will say, okay, they, they are children with a learning disability because a mother cannot speak Mandarin, cannot speak Taiwanese, so they will provide obstacle for their learning. But it's not true. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a survey done by the, the Minister of Education and found out uh, they are equally smart. Mm -hmm. Equally smart, and they are actually better in creativity. Mm -hmm. And of course, they are always uh, have the learning difficulties. Children, regardless, you are, you are Taiwanese or or Southeast Asian descendant. And also, they're they're speaking more than one language as well. And so, this is actually uh, for Advantage. not only themselves but for their parents, for the mother. Uh, often this can be an advantage or can be actually a great resource for Taiwan that's looking to build bridges with Southeast Asia. Very true. You know, if you look at the, some of the material we found, the reporting, at the very beginning when the children go to school, at the beginning they feel embarrassed mm. or humiliated for their mother because the mother cannot speak Chinese, Mandarin or mm. Mandarin. But later, when they, one or two years more later, they become very proud of their mother. Mm. You know why? Because their mother can speak Indonesia. The other kids of mother cannot speak. <laughs> <laughs> and they are very proud. And plus, when these uh, spouses, these um, migrant uh, marriage worker, ma migrant become, they are mostly in, in Xinbeishi and mm -hmm. then Central it's and It's a new South. Taipei city. Yeah. yeah, the biggest concentration. And they, they are very willing to take part in the community activities. Mm -hmm. So they become an integral part of a community and they help the community, you know, for the community. So, so people respect them. Mm. And they, so the kids feel very proud. So you can see the psychological uh, mindset changes, the children. That was RTI host Andrew Ryan speaking with Dr. Michael Xiao. He is a sociologist and the chairman of the Taiwan Asian Exchange Foundation. Join us next week as they continue their conversation about how Taiwan's newest immigrants are changing Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste. And the destination. Taipei, 1968. On February 28, 70 years ago, the most traumatic period in Taiwan's history began. Resentment against Taiwan's new KMT government exploded in the streets. The government's violent response shook a generation of people and left a scar that still runs beneath Taiwanese society today. But the events of February 28, 1947 were only the beginning. A campaign of repression and murder called the White Terror Period began. It didn't let up. 
1949, Taiwan was put under martial law, a situation that would continue into the 1980s. There are plenty of peace memorials around Taiwan remembering the victims of this period. But a trip to the place where many of them were actually held hits you with the hard realities of these years in a way that visiting a peace memorial can't. The Jingmei Human Rights Memorial and Cultural Park, site of a former detention center in Taipei, has been kept largely unchanged. You walk in and you face the same claustrophobia and the same brutal concrete that those held here on political charges once did. The message here is simple. The free and open society Taiwan enjoys today is not something to be taken for granted. During the decades of martial law, ordinary civilians could be brought before a military tribunal for certain offenses, including sedition. And the site of the prison was originally occupied by a facility used to train experts in military law. With no shortage of public offenders, they needed them. Some of the original school buildings are still here. But in 1968, the Taiwan Garrison Command's martial law section moved into the site. A detention center was built, and according to one account, around 75% of inmates here were being held for political crimes at one point. It's thought that 200 to 400 people were held here. A number of these inmates were not your average prisoner. There were famous writers, one of them, Bo Yang, was arrested in 1968 for translating an American comic strip in a way that was seen as a jab at the government. Then there was radio personality Cui Xiaoping, who disappeared in 1968 at the peak of her career. Even senior intelligence officials could find themselves held here if they weren't careful. The charges could easily be fabrications. Any kind of confession could just be extracted. One example of this can be found in a string of suspects who were rounded up several months after two explosions in 1970. There were more than a dozen of them, and the museum tells us they didn't know one another well. But the case was closed and the sentences passed. To this day, no one really knows who was actually behind those explosions. Some of the people imprisoned here are perhaps better known now than they were at the time. Among their number were members of the so-called Kaohsiung Eight, leaders of a human rights protest in 1979. After democracy arrived, they'd go from protest leaders to political leaders. Annette Liu, for example, would go on to become vice president, while fellow detainee Chen Ju is currently the mayor of Kaohsiung, the same city where that protest was held. The government insisted that there were no political prisoners in Taiwan. But during the 1970s, lists of names were secretly compiled from sources like medical records and on more than one occasion smuggled abroad. The military courtrooms where prisoners' cases were tried have been left as they were, the judge's bench towering over the accused and backed with red curtains. A lawyer meeting room has also been left as it was. Of course, few bothered to hire lawyers. There wasn't much point once you ended up here. One sign also tells us that not everyone who went through this court-martial process lived. It points out the spot where those who received death sentences were released from their fetters before being taken away to the execution grounds. For the rest of the prisoners, once processed and sentenced, the cell block was home. 
Except for single cells reserved for ringleaders, most had a number of people living in cramped quarters, using the single squat toilet provided as toilet, bath, and clothes washing basin. Everyone tried to keep these as clean as they could. A brief exercise period was allowed every day. Chess was permitted, and prisoners could check out censored, out-of-date reading material from the prison library. Black and white photos show that there was even the occasional prison performance. But beyond that, many prisoners could look forward to a life of drudgery and hard work. Some of them were sent to the prison laundry and stitching factories, washing and repairing an endless stream of clothing and uniforms that came in. Their washing equipment and ironing stations are in the same places where they left them. Another prison labor group made objects for order, including handicrafts that would be sold to foreign tourists. Prisoners with a medical background were even co-opted to help those who developed psychological problems. There were a few slivers of light for those locked away here. After a conviction, letters were allowed, though they were censored and subject to a 200-word limit. There were also visiting days when relatives could buy goods from a prison store to make life easier for those on the inside. For 10 minutes, these relatives could then see each other through a pane of glass and have a conversation over a phone. But every word of the conversation had to be in Mandarin, the language imposed by the government and the native tongue of only a few of the prisoners. Those who broke rules like this had their conversations cut off. To save time, many secretly wrote messages on their hands and flashed them through the glass when no one was watching. But a sinister-looking surveillance room near the visiting area shows that someone usually was watching, and listening too. In this prison, surveillance was everywhere. Conditions weren't the same for everyone. In 1985, a special unit was built for one military man who had been arrested under foreign pressure. He was one of those implicated in the murder of a California-based dissident. Over here, there was more room and more access to visitors. Such was Taiwan under martial law. Martial law only ended in Taiwan in 1987 and political crimes only ceased to be after changes to the law in 1992. 1992 also saw the Taiwan Garrison Command, the agency that ran the detention center, dissolved. In 2007, the now decommissioned prison was turned into a monument to human rights. Some of the site's most famous inmates come back here now and again. As democracy has taken root and some former prisoners risen to positions of power, this has become a symbol of vindication for their struggle. But they are the lucky ones, and their stories make up only a small fraction of those told here. Much of the exhibit space remembers those caught up in the violence of their time, and those whose lives were cut short during the initial purges. There are graphic drawings of torture and graphic scenes of prison cells too crowded to lie down in. Then there are the stories of those who were imprisoned elsewhere. These include the stories of people transported to Green Island, a virtual penal colony off Taiwan's coast that still has a reputation as a prison. And of course, there are also stories of resistance, documented in photographs and publications. 
Picture show Taiwanese exiles marching in Japan and the U.S., demanding justice for those imprisoned in places like this. Photographs of all of these people, the victims and the fighters, look out over the exhibition halls, where artifacts and models show the workings of state repression. Taiwan's 91% score in this year's Freedom House survey of global freedom might lead some here to feel complacent, like they don't have to think about this history. But this space shows that there once was a world where these freedoms didn't exist, and it says loudly to those who enter that none of the freedoms Taiwan enjoys were inevitable. Listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Taiwanese voters will be choosing a brand new legislature next January. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to walk you through the process. Okay, you have 60 seconds to do this. Are okay. you ready, Andrew? Uh, I think so. All right, go. All right, let's start by looking at the legislature as it is right now. So as you can see, there are 113 seats all up for grabs. Right now, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, that's the green seats, they have well over a majority, followed by the Guomindang with the blue seats. The remaining seats are held by small parties and independents. Now, of the 113 seats, 73 of them are directly elected. An additional six seats are filled by Taiwan's indigenous population. And the remaining 34 seats are legislators at large, and they're filled by a party vote. Now, they introduced the party vote back in 2008. And basically, you get an extra ballot that looks a little bit like this. All the parties are lined up on it, and you use a rubber stamp to put a chop above the party that you want to select. Now, the number of legislator at large seats uh, is determined by the results of this vote. Each party has lists of their candidates in order ranked by priority. So if you're at the top of the list, chances are you'll get elected. Perfect, Andrew. <laughs> nice job. Thank you. Okay, so we know that the lists have come out for most of the parties. Are there any interesting candidates on the list? Yes. Yeah, so what's interesting is, is as of recording time, all of the parties except for one, the DPP, have released their lists. And female candidates are at the top of all the lists. That's interesting. That means we're more attractive? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think is usually what happens is they're trying to get uh, people on the list that will get people to vote for the political party for so that Maybe the vote. women will come out or the people who like these women. Or, or people who are not you know, usually seen in the legislature. So it's candidates that are a little bit different, minority candidates, new immigrants, people with disabilities. People who usually don't have a shot at being in the legislature, this is parties. These are, this is a great chance for the parties to use these candidates to attract voters. Um, now, what's interesting is that this time around, uh, a lot of the parties, it looks like at least the two main parties, maybe will be choosing more politicians than in previous years. Is there a reason for this? What's interesting is this year, uh, the KMT has released their list, and it's largely politicians. And there's a little bit of unhappiness within and without of the party, outside of the party. They're saying the DPP might also do the same thing because 
they're worried that they're not going to have the majority and they need people who can push their agenda in the mm. legislature. But who knows if it'll work for them or against them, right? Exactly. All right, so uh, we'll see Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.